Released in 1997 and with Fincher finally in his stride after the success of Seven, the game is something of a hidden gem in the film. Fincher filmography. Much released to a success, both critical and commercial on its release, it has since, for whatever reason, been kind of forgotten by a lot of audiences as they focus on more prominent pictures in this filmography, such as the aforementioned Seven, Fight Club, and The Social Network, to name but a few. But here we see Fincher once again tapping into the same sort of vein that we saw with Seven, if perhaps not going as dark, as Michael Douglas stars as the wealthy investment banker, given a very unique gift by his brother. What follows is one of the most twisting and perhaps one of the more inventive uh, thrillers of the 90s, and certainly marked out Douglas and Penn as not only having great on-screen chemistry, but saw both of them playing to their strengths, with Fincher once again showing himself a master of cinematography and screening. I'm Norwood. I'm Kim. And you're listening to Moves and Tea. Let's take it to the booth. We're talking about the game from 1997, um, and tonight we're also joined by a guest who regular listeners of the show will be already familiar with. It, uh, of course, gives me great pleasure to welcome back to the show, Norman. Thank you. Great to be back again. Um, obviously, as we said, uh, tonight we're talking about the game, probably one of the more overlooked titles on the Fincher filmography. And... Um, I mean, just opening thoughts on this one, was this a first-time watch for anyone, or... Anybody else no, here? I've seen it. I've seen it a couple times before. Yeah, no, uh, I saw it, like, when it was first released, I think, and I don't remember anything, so this was, like, a watch from, like, the second watch from a thousand years ago that I don't remember anymore, so... It felt like a first watch, though. <laughs> yeah. And it's same for myself. It's been a few years since I've seen this film last, and I think it's one of those films that actually benefits if you put some distance between viewings on it because it's so much of the fun is in the mystery and watching it be unraveled, especially with a director like Fincher because he's not the sort of director who underlines every particular clue and object for the audiences. He doesn't play down to his audiences he just presents uh, things and it's up to the audience to find the clues and follow the path themselves and I think when you're dealing with a, a film like The Game which is so frustrating when it came out the fact that you're like well what's the game and everyone no one could give you like a straight answer and then you watch the film and you realise oh why we can't give you a straight answer because it pretty much gives away the film so we will just say now spoilers ahead if you've not seen it Um, but Obviously, with this this film, it sees him working with Michael Douglas and Sean Penn. Uh, to you okay there, no one? Yes. Yeah, I'm here. Oh yeah, sorry, I'm just getting weird noises there. Um, 
I mean, for myself, I love seeing Michael Douglas play Men of Power. Um, if you, if you sort of fans of Michael Douglas or Sean Penn, I mean, for myself, Sean Penn, I can sort of give or take. I'm not really a, a fan either way. It's... Norman here. I'm a big fan of both of theirs. Um, yeah, on this watch, I was thinking a lot of uh, his Gordon Gecko character in Wall Street as well. Um, these characters are like one of the East Coast version, one of the West Coast version. So basically the same guy. Um, so I do like when he's in that position of power a lot. Yeah, and we've certainly seen him play the sort of roles many times over the past. I mean, we've obviously seen him in Wall Street. We saw it in, um, like, in in Traffic. And again, even in, like, Falling Down, he's always, like... For some reason, he started off with playing, like, this devilish rogue when we like, watching things such like Jewel of the Nile and Romance in the Stone. And then he's, mm-hmm. as he got older, he's, like, matured into playing these, like, uh, wealthy investment banker types. And it's, like been this flawless evolution of his uh, path as, a, as an actor and I think it's just been been uh, fantastic to see him really just get better with age which is something that we don't often get to say about actors or directors for that matter so but um, Kim what about yourself where do you sort of lie on those these actors uh, I, I mean I definitely watch Michael Douglas a lot more than I watch Sean Penn yep um, but I mean, Michael Douglas, I, I, re- I remembered him being like really like in a lot of movies that I watched in, I don't know, the nineties or something. And then I remember like picturing him as this kind of like wealthy man, like in power all the time. But then a few years ago when I first started, uh, blogging, people were like, oh, you have to watch him in like Jewel of the Nile and Romancing the Stone or something. And then I was like, whoa, this is a different side. So I guess I kind of watched his movies in reverse yeah uh, but i mean michael douglas is kind of like he he really does fit into like definitely like while i did like jewel of the nile and romantic the stone don't get me wrong on that but i think that um he really fits into that whole image of the investment banker like a wealthy man and a man of power and that sort of thing he really like captures that role really really well yeah, and I mean, certainly here we he's playing Nicholas Van Orton, who's, let me see, he's pretty much lives this sort of like Scrooge uh, lifestyle. He potters around his big old mansion that he inherited from his father. Um, he's haunted at the same time by the suicide of his father on his birthday, and now he's approaching his 48th birthday, which is the same age that his father committed suicide. He's sort of like haunted by those same ghosts again. At the same time, he's got the Black Sheep brother here, played by Sean Penn, who has basically been off swanning it out in exotic places of the world and decides to uh, show up for his brother's birthday, offering him this gift of uh, of a game um, with the Consumer Recreation Services, or CRS, which uh, Comrade basically says will change his life. And from here, we're really sort of... The wheels are put in motion for this whole... Um, breaking down of a character as he's sort of forced to go through different sort of trials to try and find out uh, who exactly is behind the game. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's uh, I mean, him is again. He's playing that that man of power. I mean, he passes around in forty four thousand dollar shoes. He's cruises around in limousines, and he constantly has things like waited on him and has people who respect him and. When he obviously <coughs> first goes to the, the to CRS and he's subjected to all those trials, 
it's really so interesting the fact that here's like the first time he's not in control every other time we see him up until this point he's always in control he's always got people listening to him so the actual trials he's going through at crs what did we sort of feel about that because i felt that a lot of it was just a lot of smoke and mirrors and it didn't actually matter half of the responses he was giving I don't know. Norman, I thought it was very important because it used that to tailor what they're going to do in the game and how much stress he can take. So, especially the medical part, I think that's very important. The psychological part's important. Um, I think that's how they gleaned about his father. And if you notice, the first kind of thing that kind of struck me is when he comes home and finds the clown, you notice it's kind of lying in the exact same spot where his dad fell. Yeah. The kind of set logical tone early on. So I did feel that those testing was important and played a major role in how they're going to tailor the game to him. Kim? I don't know. I mean, I kind of feel like... I kind of feel like it, it definitely matters because they're they're testing on all these things and I think the test purpose is more to give you that feeling that this game is going to be stressful. It's gonna put him out of control and it tests all his like I just it's just kind of like a stress test. Like just how, how much can he take uh physically and psychologically. And and then they kind of build those uh those parameters around this to customize it to him. Uh, whereas, like, where he gets all this other information about, you know, like, exactly where the, the father uh, died and all that stuff, I feel like, obviously, you know, the final twist at the end is there's a lot, there's obviously uh, a big connection to Conrad, who, who you know, obviously we know at this point was, had, had, uh, was the one who gave him the gift and had gone through an experience like this as well. Yeah, um, I also love the fact the interview is conducted by uh, James Ribbon, who, I mean, himself, he's a character actor. He's been over, like, a hundred different films. You've probably seen him, like, turn up in everything from, like, Carlito's Way, Independence Day, and Meet the Parents. He's constantly there in the background, so it kind of made sense, the fact that here he turns up as this bit actor who the company hire to conduct this interview there. And I, the whole interview sequence, I just love that his introduction there and when he's like giving the test and and uh, Nicholas is there it's sort of like reading out some of these questions he's being forced to answer and it's like I feel shame when I masturbate or I like to torture small animals and it's like, it makes me wonder what sort of people they're getting in to do this game because obviously it's targeted at very sort of rich people so it's a very exclusive service especially since they, this company have the power to basically control anything that they want to sell this experience so i was always i was just sure that it was like they would just like a lot of the tests the fact they kept dragging on was just like seeing how far that they could push him and just see what would push his buttons really the fact that they keep him they say oh you're gonna be here for an hour and then he's there for four hours and um and the fact that they say no we haven't been able to tailor the experience for you after like wasting a whole day for him and stuff so <laughs> So the mind games start pretty early on with this one. Um, and as you said, uh, said Norman, the, the fact that they, the first clue that we have there is like the clown, which I have to say is kind of sick to say that you're playing on somebody's memories of a, uh, the death of their parents. 
and using it as as the first sort of trigger in in this game. So, do you think there's like a real sort of question of morals, or that that we should really be questioning with the with the company? No, I think this is a high end thing. Like as Tim was saying, this is at the elite and the rich and kind of the the private school crowd who have been doing psychological games on themselves and their friends, probably going back from when they were all in boarding school or somewhere. So I think that's probably part for the course for that crowd. Um, you know, skull and bones and all this type of secret stuff and playing on each other's worst fears. I'm sure a lot of their parents pushed them, pushed them, pushed them all the same way. So I think that the crowd they're going for is used to a type of thing and probably actually thrive on it. But yeah, I mean, at the same time, it's kind of like the CRS is this position of, um, of you know, it, it feels a lot like they're creating this experience because it's kind of for the elite because the elite is always in power. And what this game does is kind of flips them around. It kind of changes the tune. Obviously, this is tailored towards, uh, uh, you know, Nicholas Van, Hort- Van Orten, right? But... At the same time, you know, you kind of have this feeling that maybe that's what they crave. It's a bit like it's something that breaks out of this routine of their of of, of their life, and it gives them this moment to uh, reflect a lot on the things around them. And and that's you know that's that's what the whole the whole game's purpose was, and why it was like why you know we see at the end because you know during the whole process you kind of have this feeling of a oh my goodness, this guy's just having like a really, really bad day where everything is going wrong and he's going on this like chase. Mm. Um, but then, but then you know, it all turns around and in the end it all comes to this, uh, this kind of like life, it is this life-altering experience for him. Yeah. Interesting as the game like goes on and it's only they start like, you know, faking emptying his bank accounts, the shooting at him at one point and it's sort of like, what experience are we selling here? Because we get, we go to such extremes with this journey that we've found. Because yeah. we, do, I mean, from where we see uh, Nicholas at the start, and as I said, he's the executive. He's the guy who's ruthlessly shutting down corporations because they're not making stock percentage. And by the time we get to the end of this game, and he's been, but. He's been entombed alive. He's been dumped in Mexico and forced to sell his last <laughs> noteworthy possession so that he can get a taco and a bus ride home. Um, it's sort of like, it makes me wonder, it's sort of like, wow, we were really, it, this could go really one of ways. Yes, it could be this life-changing experience for this guy, or it could just like completely psychologically yeah. break him. And we certainly, towards the end, we seem to be on that fine line of... Yeah, which way it's gonna go? So I, I felt almost so bad for him. Just what they put him through, like especially towards the end of this game, because it's goes from being something kind of fun. It's sort of like, oh, you know, the waitress spills the drinks on on the guy, and it's sort of like I get secret messages, so I have to like follow her, and we get the little chase sequence there, and all these sort of little fun things, and then it suddenly starts becoming a whole lot more serious. Yeah, um, and that's where you saw which. I think it's a real sort of credit to Finch the fact that he's able to play it off like, oh yeah, the game doesn't exist. This is all just a scam to steal money off the rich. <laughs> but 
I think that that's the thing. It's it's all these smoke and mirrors that they create, and and it makes this it makes this kind of like effect of 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 like you said, you know, it it's very it very much like goes on the line of morals and how much you're going to put someone through this and and how much they're going to pull through, and it feels like CRS has all these things all calculated, and that's kind of like the part that is the most I think. Uh, I guess unbelievable in a certain way. It feels almost like the the game itself is that they've already calculated like the probability of each thing that he's gonna do, and they've already planned like a step or two before him. And you know, obviously, yeah, the like you, you were talking about morals before, and and I mean, like it kind of goes on this this thing where like Van Orton has this issue where. We really feel like at the beginning, he kind of maybe lacks a bit of those morals. And it's kind of like a negative negative becomes a positive deal. Hmm. But I think that's where the testing comes in. Like nowadays, they would say that Google, like everybody, you probably, now you dump all your information to Google or search engine or something online. And they're saying Google can predict your next move before you can predict your next move. There's a pattern of everything you've been doing for the last three, four years. So, again, I think that goes back to the testing, and they figure out, you know, if you have three choices, which way you'd go based on how you answered those questions. Mm-hmm. But also in the, on that rooftop scene, they do kind of tell you they have contingencies for if you don't go where they expected to go to lead you back in the right direction. They talk about there was a diver in the water in case you couldn't get out of the car. Yeah. Um, yeah. Talk about if you didn't jump, I'm supposed to push you off. So there is there are... You know, if he doesn't do A, there's a B and C backup plan. So they do kind of mention that in the end. Yeah. They say they do everything, but they can kind of lead you where they want you to go. Yeah, I I just love the the fact that he just never knows who he can trust. You think that he thinks he's found an ally, and then it turns out that no, that they're also part of the game. And when he starts like realizing that he's walked onto rooms that are actually just sets, um, such as when he goes to the waitress's apartment and he's like going for the bookcase and it's like all fake it's all fake and the drawers are empty, the fridge is empty and it's like been made to look like this apartment where this woman's living. I just thought that, that scene in particular was really, really, really great. And I think it just yeah, also I mean, helps... that's, that's the best thing in the movie for me. When he, yeah. when he goes fake pulls the books down and they're all together and they're half books, like that's that is the best scene of the movie. Yeah, no, because that was like that was like the turning point, right? You, uh, it was that point that you knew that this game was was more than what we've seen just now. It's not just a chase down someone. It's it's really like all planned out. Everything is calculated to a T. They know exactly where he's gonna go, and it's all to bluff him. Definitely, and. I think this is what this is the benefit of having an actor like Michael Douglas on on your cast because he just sells every single twist. Like when we need him to be like in the position of power, he's doing that. If we need him to be in someone who's losing control, he can do that. He's just so versatile in the role, and it's what you need. You can't just have one actor who can play just one type. You need that sort of every man actor who can play the many different sort of phases, so that we like totally buy into it. And I mean, he's such a despicable character, Nicholas is. The fact he's so unlikable, he's so wrapped up yeah. in his own self-centeredness. And the fact that we can get to 
see him at his lowest point and still feel compassion for this guy like you just want him to get a break by the end and it's sort of i just thought that was just like so fantastic um even if the the end sort of feels like a little um extreme of the end game so <laughs> and no no kidding <laughs> um so yeah, I mean, just uh, talking about, want to go back to Sean Penn's character now. The character originally was going to be a daughter character, so it was going to be Nicholas's daughter, and she was going to be played by Jodie Foster. Now, because of the age difference between Foster and Michael Douglas is about nine years, they thought it was a bit strange, so they reworked the script so that she became his sister. And ultimately, there was uh, some issues with with uh, the production she went off to do contact and then they were in talks with jeff bridges to take on the role which would have been interesting but it's a little more harder to see him as sort of the black sheep um which sean penn obviously really sort of embodies here because i mean how do with conrad did you get the purpose that he's like a screw-up or or where do we sort of come in for it because obviously he's very sort of key to the the game working initially and he does sort of also play that sort of key role at the end um with with being responsible for the whole thing coming together so how do we sort of like rate uh, that sort of character and what he brings to things i think he was kind of the the, he's the he's the typical trust fund kid Mm. he's second son He's got nothing to do. He has a big trust fund to do whatever he wants to do in the world. Never have to work. I was thinking along the lines. Uh, did you guys ever see a movie called Sabrina with Harrison Ford and Greg Kinnear? I've seen it. I just can't yeah. remember it. Uh-huh. So Greg Kinnear is kind of in the Sean Penn role. Okay. He's the younger, irresponsible, doing whatever he wants. Um, where Harrison Ford is a responsible one. Mm-hmm. But it, But there is a trace that it's he had to step up he could and so i had that thought as well as i'm watching this that no he knows what he's doing when he has to do something he can but because big brother doing everything he just kind of steps back but he is a screw up though he has drug issues he's running around the world he's always needing something he's always late he wants to smoke in the restaurant like exactly that role he's the screw up yeah I found him very similar to my own brother. <laughs> I don't know when I watch it. It's all like because my brother's sort of like just out there in the in the world doing his own thing, and uh, I was always having to be like the responsible one. So, and uh, yeah, and now he makes some money for doing very little. <laughs> um, Michael Douglas's character holding Conrad as a baby, right? So they do show that they're not apart. They're like they're a good distance apart as well. Yeah, those flashback sequences. I don't know what anyone else for, but it was an underlying sort of creepiness, almost sadness to what we see in those sort of flashback sequences. I mean, this father seems really sort of distant, even though we're told the complete opposite by um, the housemaid that uh, his father was always, you know just very sort of aloof but he was he was never no one got the sort of impression he was going to go and throw himself off the roof um but there's just something really sad about those whole movie 
flashback sequences that we see scattered throughout the film. I just found every time we saw one of them, it just seemed like a very sort of sad childhood that he'd come up with. I think it was just, you know, we're watching it from a third person perspective. So there's there's a lot of like the the idea is that we can see that his father is not like is very distant and feels like something's a bit off with him and how, you know, he obviously um, commits suicide. But but then at the same time, you know, we also hear all of these things like the house may talk about it and whatnot that that. They don't notice these signs, and it's probably because these people are so close to him. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's to make uh, Nicholas Van Orton feel a bit better about the situation. Uh, maybe it's just you know a lack of communication. I don't know what it is, but I mean like we're never clear on the father's position on this whole thing. But the flashbacks is kind of like to reinforce kind of like maybe this like possibility of where he will end up if he turns like his father, because obviously he's he's becoming quite distant with the people around him also. Like, he, he kind of, like, doesn't talk to... Like, kind of, like, just... Uh, you know, he kind of just uh, tries, like, to have a conversation with the ex-wife, but he doesn't really seem like he wants to have that conversation. And it's like a lot of people are trying to keep in contact with him, but he is always, like, stepping back or, like, having some kind of distance between everybody, too. Yeah, I find those kind of show that he lost his childhood. Yeah. The minute that off that roof, he lost his childhood. He didn't take care of his brother now. He's the man of the house. They don't really talk about the mother a lot, but I, I'm expecting she was on pills now after a while after this, all, this whole thing occurred. So he had to be responsible at a very young age. And I think that reflects in what he eats. So he ha- he's having hamburgers. He has the housemaid do the sandwich and cut off all the, all the corners from like his little kid of French fries. I think he's kind of stuck as a kind of a Michael Jackson type thing maybe even, where no childhood is gone. And I think that's what that's showing, his childhood kind of ended. Um, and that's what goes flashback. I think it was a birthday party for him, I want to think. And, that, and his dad jumped off the roof right after that, and that was the end of his childhood. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, I mean, just, just that whole, like, lonely birthday he spends, spends by himself, though, it really sort of gives you, I think that's what the, the one shot which really sort of tells you the most about this character, the life he's choosing to live. I mean, the only sort of contact he has on his birthday is the phone call from his ex-wife, whose relationship to him is kind of confusing. I wasn't sure if she's, like, still holds a bit of a torch for him or whether she's just trying to trying to make keep things on friendly friendly terms because she's very clearly moved on with her life i mean she's got a a daughter and she's got a new husband and um and a whole this whole other life away from him yet she still chooses to call him on his birthday so i'm not sure if that daughter is not nikki's daughter though I know the new baby, she's pregnant. I know that the new one isn't, but I'm not sure if the older one is his or not. Mm. Um, yeah, because I know, obviously, it's, it's, it's um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just that, just, but again, with that whole sort of sequence, I mean, even he comes home from work and what he does chooses to do at home and his little downtime is just to do more work. <laughs> 
work seems to be his only thing he has in his in his life as well. It's, uh, as good as. But that. I really feel, yeah. But I really feel like the whole purpose of of the ex wife and that call was to to show that he's he's being distant and that he's very lonely in his life. Like there's really, like you said, there's, there's really just work in his life. And that's why the game is so important to him. Like the best gift that he could get to, for, for someone like him is that, is to have something that changes that routine and something that really like, I guess not take the people around him for granted instead of like pushing them all away. He embraces these people who are trying to build or maintain relationships around him. That he seems to just not care too much about. Yeah. Um, obviously, speaking of uh, relationships, uh, the waitress played here by uh, Deborah Carla Unger, I think, is uh, is one of the most uh, important relationships that he has as for the mo- for the large portion of the film. Um, her audition for the for the role of Christine, though, was a test reel consistent of the two-minute sex scene from David Cronenberg's Crash, which Michael Douglas thought was a joke, but uh, when he met him and Fincher and met her in person, they were so impressed by their acting, she got cast in the role, and the two have really good chemistry, and I have to say that her, her character arc in the film is probably one of uh, one I didn't see coming. Even though I've seen the film before, I was still surprised when uh, the tables are turned... And that uh, we get that twist involved in her character. I think that came completely. I know I was really, really surprised that this person you think you can trust, who's like giving you all this information, and and that is the one who's going to ultimately stab you in the back, or in this case, stab you in the front. So, but um, what do yeah, you like, think? It, yeah, please go on. Kind of things kind of twist again at the cottage, right? Like at, at the house. You get the impression, okay, she's on his side. She sees he's falling apart. She's going to help him, right? Try and give him information to help him. Mm. But at the cottage, when she drugs him, you know, then, okay, no, she she really is bad. You know, that type of thing. It's kind of the thought you're having at that point. Yeah. And it does also lead to a great bit of improv by uh, Douglas later on when he has the meeting with his ex-wife. And then the diner and the waitress brings him the the bottle of water with the uh, glass, um, and he just like completely freaks out. It's like, no, I who opened this bottle of water? I want an unopened bottle of water. I don't want a glass of any ice. And I thought that was such a great throwback and just a wonderful bit of improv on Douglas's part. The fact that he acknowledged this, what this character had been through previously, and the fact that they probably wouldn't be too trusting of anyone offering them a drink in a later scene. So. Um, I mean, the original ending of this, uh, she was... The, the ending of the original script is kind of weird, and it kind of loses the uh, point here. Is, um, at the end, he shoots Christine and then commits suicide, which really means that the game's kind of for naught. Um, so, as extreme as the ending is, how do we feel about the big, uh, <laughs> the big swan dive into reality? <laughs> I think it's really, I think it really is like, at this point, you're having this moment of who to believe, right? Because you're, 
by the end, you're you're so absorbed into this game that what part of it is a game and what part of it is reality? Even when he walks into this room, right, and and he sees all these people that he's met along this entire game experience that he's had, oh, yeah. and they're all sitting there in a cafeteria. And then you're just like, well, you know, if you were in his spot, you'd be like, well, what is this crap going on? You know, like, I've just been messed up by everybody to no extremes. And then it's hard for him to believe what what Christine is saying at that point, that this is, you know, that this is whatever. And then that this is just, you know, everything was planned and, you know, that that whoever is behind that Conrad is behind the door or whatever. And then. It's just a big mess of a situation, and then he kind of like, and then you know, obviously he shoots, and then it's his 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 gun, and then you have to believe whether, you know, it's all real or not, and then you kind of get really wrapped up as he dives down, and that's like the the big finale, right? You see all these people down there, and and you're like, okay, well, is this real or not? <laughs> kind of thing. It was kind of like it was kind of like the whole game's the whole game's end game was to have him live through kind of like that his fa- his father's 48 you know like when he was 48 and he committed suicide and it kind of like was to it felt like it was to get it out of his system kind of thing yeah yeah i felt Deborah Unger was very good in several instances of keeping the audience off beat yeah as i said or um, at the cottage scene, then when she kind of takes his side at the house scene, and everyone's listening, and then in the end, when she talks about the gun. Yeah. Like, where did you get the gun? Where did that gun come from? We didn't have that gun. You get it from security guard. It doesn't look like it. It's my gun. <laughs> that whole thing. Yeah. You kind of bring it. I thought that was really good. Yeah, she was she was kind of like the glue, right? She, she was the piece of the puzzle in this game, which was really just... Um, she she would kind of she controlled the game in a certain way where uh, she was doing all the misdirections that you needed for 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 uh, Michael Douglas's character to to feel like the game was going a certain way and it was crazy because through, throughout this whole thing they would be playing with his trust at the different levels towards her and kind of like coercing him to do certain moves and making him believe certain things. Um, I, there's a couple of things obviously just to touch on scenes you mentioned there uh, when we obviously have him do the big you know big swan dive and he you know he lands on the big air mat and we go into the actual sort of final party scene um, it should be noted the paramedic who um, is uh, sweeping the fake glass off Michael Douglas face is Spike Jones in a fun little cameo there mm. um, also I loved when they are showing the party and they have like the invitation. I was so wanted it to say that um, that Nicholas will be dropping in at this time, but sadly he didn't do that because he's a more <laughs> more reserved filmmaker than I am. Clearly, um, well, he does say that. Invite says sometimes between like eight yeah. and eight eight. They give a window, right? Oh yeah, they yeah, got a window, yeah. but I wanted it to say that he will be dropping in. Okay. Because so, obviously he falls in through the big skylight, so I thought that would be a, a fun play on play on things. So, But um, the whole cafeteria scene, I mean, you already said already, uh, Norman, that you liked the the apartment sequence. But for myself, the cafeteria scene is like 
my favorite shot of the whole film is just the fact you see all these characters we've encountered before and we now know who's been in on the game um when i actually worked in the airport i actually convinced a couple of passengers that we had a similar thing at the airport because whenever you go to the airport you see people you won't see anywhere else and you see like those people buy those awful airport t-shirts you know with like the big maple leaf that says canada and stuff on it um i used to say like you know those big warehouses are just like big warehouses where they have like actors in for like costuming and we just put them in the airport for character so uh there's a bunch of people probably wandering around birmingham airport who think that the game actually is existing just at birmingham airport but um yeah i'm just trying to think obviously should we talk a bit about trademarks here because obviously we open with a very unique opening sequence this time before in seven we obviously had the notebooks this time we got puzzle pieces um Mm -hmm. I have to say, so far, all the uh, the three Fincher openings of, you know, Alien 3, 7, and the game, I mean, do you have a personal favourite so far with these openings? Because I always find the game one really trippy to look at. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I found the game was rather subtle um, if you talked about just context itself. So, I mean, obviously, if you're talking about, like, context and kind of creating the the moment a lot i think seven definitely is the most powerful out of the three so far um whereas i mean alien three isn't bad it kind of like the purpose is in the opening sequence i mean we talked about in the episode before was really to bridge the second movie to the third movie and so that one had kind of more of a significant story value to it No, do you have a favorite Fincher opening at all? Um, I'm thinking. I like the opening of Social Network a lot. Okay. I think that's opening. Cool. Um, so let's obviously looking at like the Fincher trademarks here. I mean, here we've obviously got the dark urban setting again. For myself, I mean, this film could very much be set in the same city as Seven. We're just obviously now in the up upper part of it whereas with seven we're sort of in the lower sort of uh part so here we're sort of more in the financial district fincher fought for them to shoot in san francisco the studio wanted la which was a cheaper option but you know fincher won out on this one again with the star power michael douglas backing him so um even though, I mean, obviously Seven is shot in an unnamed city, uh, this one's obviously very clearly San Francisco, and Zodiac again is San Francisco. So, I mean, for yourself, do you do you also see feel that like Seven and this film could take place in the same city, or do you think they're very sort of different cities that this uh, the films take place in? Well, I, I like that this one's San Francisco. Um... I think Seven plays well, but it's nameless, actually. It's a nameless spot. Because the main villain's a nameless kind of guy, right? So I think that kind of goes together well. I like the San Francisco vibe. And even the first scene when he's kind of driving to work and going down the hill, if you know it's San Francisco. And I even had a thought to Michael Douglas being in the TV show Streets of San Francisco. So I kind of like that kind of um, dichotomy as well. So I thought it plays Wow. Yeah, it's also fun the way the fact that we obviously the more 
<laughs> sort of broken down that my that uh, Nicholas gets the the further into the scummier parts of the city that he goes. I mean, he starts off obviously in the high rises and the limos and well, the money is, and then as he goes on, he sort of like ends up right down in sort of like the docks and these sort of broken down urban areas. So it very much the city in many ways reflects his sort of mental state. I found throughout and. The fact that he ends up in Mexico when he's absolute destitute and just like on the absolute uh, poverty line is, again, it just seemed like a perfect sort of uh, representation for where he is because he sort of blends in so much with these people that he may have initially sort of looked down on as we look at him at the start of the film. And another good Fincher point too is how he dresses people to match the set. Um, when he's uptown, he's in the darker colors. His colors tend to slowly get lighter and lighter. And then on the bottom in Mexico, he wakes up in a cemetery where everything is white and he's dressed in white. Yeah. So he kind of yeah. lighter and he's going down. And of course, San Francisco is kind of a downward city. So that all kind of, he's on a downward spiral, I guess, which matches the hilly downward hills of San Francisco. Good point. Yeah. I have to say that when it came to like the light in here, I was surprised that he kept his usual blue tint just to the one sequence, which is when we see his how his mansion, which has been covered in graffiti, and we see it all with the black light. That's the only sort of use of the blue tint that we really get here. The rest of it is very much in shadow, and especially the CRS agents, which I thought were particularly great. The fact that these shadowy agents are just shot in shadow; we never actually see their faces. They're like almost like silhouettes the way he shoots them which I thought was just like a really great touch. I actually think the blue tint was used um, in multiple places, but it was very subtle that you would not be able to notice it. Because I remember there was one sequence that I, that it popped out particularly, and it wasn't the blue light sequence. It was something else. I just can't remember what it is anymore. Yeah. That's the other part that uh, when we were questioning like how far they took it, they graffiti the inside of this guy's mansion and pretty much trash it. It's sort of like... That's going to cost an absolute fortune to get it <laughs> redone. It's like, it's not really so much a game at that point. It's just like, ah, oh, that would just drive me insane. Just like, have someone come in and like, redecorate my house with graffiti. <laughs> oh no, the blue tint room was in the, when he went to, when he goes to the hotel and, and, uh, and there's like all of that, the sex tapes and, and, and the pictures and all that stuff. That was like that was in like really blue tint, but then it was contrasted with like a bit of the the light and the glare there. Uh, a lot of grays, like when he goes into the CRS office, a lot of grays and yeah, and that section kind of a high tech type look for there, as opposed to the deep browns and blacks in his, you know, kind of corporate office setting, and in the club as well. Yeah. Um, trying to think of anything else that we haven't uh, touched upon here. Um, I got a question. Yes, please. When does everybody think the game actually, what was the first point when the game starts? The first point when the game starts for me is when he receives the call that he's been rejected. Yeah. I would say the same, Kim. And it seems like it seems like a, a, an obvious trick. I mean, obviously, the, the more obvious one would be like the discovery of the clown and 
um, when they really start, they start initially sort of messing with him uh, by having like the TV announcers start talking to him. Which, again, you really got to question the intentions of a man who's trying to dismantle his TV with a knife. Um, <laughs> but at least they bothered to point out, you know, that's not such a smart idea. But, um, oh my God. I think it's in the club. When he he's told he's not in the game, okay, maybe he didn't get in the game. And then he's in the club, and these two guys in the shot just are talking how great this game is. Yeah, you're you're right. You're right because those two guys that were there, I think one of them was in the cafeteria. I think I think they in the both, they in, both the were in the cafeteria. Yeah. yeah, they were both in the cafeteria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This with them, he doesn't even know them. He's, he's, oh, these are buddies, but then they say nice to meet you. He doesn't even know who these guys are. It just shows you how kind of solitary and he doesn't even have any friends at the club he goes to all the time. So, and they're like, nice to meet you. Like, he doesn't even know, when it, the only guy he knows is the guy behind the bar who's serving the drinks. Yeah, because he's there playing squash by himself. He doesn't, um, he, he has no, like, squash partner. And as you said, he's, he just does everything by himself. I mean, he has a shower in his um, in his office so that he, he can just, like, constantly just uh, keep working. Um... I was surprised by the romantic angle at the end, though. I have to say that it, it was weird. It should feel forced, but for some reason I was I was kind of accepting because it felt like almost like a reward for him becoming this new man. And I know that, obviously, Conrad says that, you know, I did this because you were becoming too much of an intolerable ass, um, <laughs> which is justifiable enough. And it just felt kind of, for some reason, just him and Christine getting together at the end just seemed like a... Although it came kind of like a left field and a little forced in many ways, I, for some reason I just really accepted it. So I don't know if anyone else thought their their sort of romantic angle at the end was was uh, forced or not. I mean, but that's not where the movie is supposed to end. Though that's, Michael Douglas wanted it to end um, when he falls off and the applause. He wanted he wanted to end right there. He didn't want the whole party and wanted it to end at that point. But others won out and went through this kind of extra steps. Yeah. Which, but I did like the bill part, though, when Carmen's looking at paying the bill. And then, do you want to split it? Oh, yes, yes. Oh, please, please, please. <laughs> but, but it's so nice because they, they don't show you the bill, right? So you, you have this, like, idea. You, you're, you're trying to guess what this astronomical number is going to be. Well, you look at the size of the bill, though. It's like yeah, a I know book. it's like a it's like a booklet. Yeah, so it's probably like 150 grand for that thing, which is again why it's such a crew that is able to do it, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, the the fact is, I mean, the company rent the owner whole building, and they shift the shift their offices on floors like it would seem like on a daily basis. Which has got to be is no easy feat, and I love that if you actually sit down and try and figure out how the game works, it constantly just like gives you it. it constantly um, gives you the finger. It's like everything's almost worked out. There's no like leaps in logic or faith. Everything seems to have been catered for, and that's why I love just even when you start like getting into the sort of mechanics of the game, it's just so perfectly worked out for something that often seems to be making up as it goes. 
So yeah, yeah. But I mean, yeah, because this this goes back to you know like the the first things we were talking about, and it you know Norma made a good point about all this is planned out with contingency plans, and it's it's to make it feel obviously natural, and it's based on obviously all the tests that he did in the beginning at the CRS. And also all the, the little hints, like, watch well, it this time, the first time everyone noticed, when he goes to Christine's house, there's a van parked out front where those guys come up, get up and shoot, and that mm-hmm. says CRS. Yeah. And the, the cab says CRS. Like, there's all sorts of little hints and clues to CRS all the way along, so yeah. I found kind of noticed all those on this watch, all the little subtle places mm-hmm. where CRS Um, anything else that uh, anyone wants to bring up at all? I was just looking at um, IMDb, and uh, I I just noticed that Nicholas's father is played by Charles Martinet, which is the guy who voices uh, Mario and Luigi and stuff. So <laughs> oh I think yeah, that's he's interesting... Mario, Wario, isn't yeah. he? <laughs> I just thought that was an interesting little little point. Because I'm right in thinking you've met him, Kim? Yeah, I, I went to a Q&A at Montreal Comic-Con. Uh, so, I just looked at the guy's IMDb, and it is just Mario, 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 Mario. Oh. It's all Mario, Mario, Luigi. <laughs> uh, what I want to bring up is, is that this was supposed to have been Fincher's first movie. He had just written and ready to go. But then Brad Pitt came available to do seven, so he did seven first. Yeah. So this was the first one he was going to do. Well, yeah, I mean, the advantage of, obviously, the fact he did seven before this one is it meant they could then get a bigger budget for the game. And I think this is a film which really benefits from having a decent budget behind it. I would hate to have seen the game shot on a budget. Because there's so many course, yeah. elaborate shots in this, and just the scale of this game that's being played here. I mean, it's not like you can... With 7, you can obviously work around the budget because of the locations and and what, and uh, how that film is, is shot. But with the game, I mean, there's so many like elaborate sort of stunt works that's got to be put in. There's um, action sequences. There's that whole scene with like um, the dumpster dive which yeah. actually fell into a dumpster with real rats in fracturing your <laughs> ankle so real credit to her for that one yeah but i mean like think about it you're making you're 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 trying to film an elite high society game on a low budget i don't think that kind of works it would have been real weird and not very convincing i would think yeah definitely not no, so. I- And I wonder if Michael Douglas would have done it too without Seven having been out there before. Um, it's always it's always hard to say because I mean, he signed up to do Traffic just because um, his wife Catherine Zeta Jones basically passed him the script over breakfast. Um, that that's how he got involved in 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 Traffic. So you're never sure what way he goes because he does a lot of indie films as well. So, but. I think the buzz that was surrounding Fincher after Seven, I think, certainly opened a lot of doors to him. It gave him more sort of clout with the studio that, you know, he could be left to do his own thing. And I think 
when Seven came out, I think he was this sort of director that everyone suddenly wanted to work with. So, and especially when you consider the fact that he had Jodie Foster and Michael Douglas potentially appearing in his in his third film, um, two absolute heavyweights of uh, of acting. So. Although I'm kind of glad that he didn't use Jodie Foster as much as I love Jodie Foster, I don't think she would have been she would have she wouldn't have been as as good in the um, the Sean Penn role. Yeah, you wouldn't have believed her as much as a screw up. I don't think has she ever played a screw up? Um, I no, I I really think you know Jodie Foster is kind of like that character who her acting style is very similar to Michael Douglas, where it's just like. A lot of panic so <laughs> so she she's really good in like say you know panic room but as as like a sean penn you know like a screw-up character i really don't see her doing that i feel like she's more of like she's either a very contained character or she's a very nervous like nervous and uh, agitated type of character more. yeah i think she's take control more like in contact or in even in inside uh Inside Man, Inside Job, what movie is that? That, that um, Spike Lee one. Like, she's, you know, she's the first one to say that's above your pay grade. That was her, uh, I think, Inside Job. She was oh, Inside yeah. Man. But anyway, she, like, she said that phrase first in a movie. That's above your pay grade. Mm-hmm. I would see her as being in control all the time. Yeah, but then, I mean, she's, she's done other, like, obvious... She's a little bit more like, you know, in the miss role. So I can kind of see her kind of like in this kind of like Michael Douglas character. Uh, but I, I don't know. I mean, I just, I, it, the point is, I, don't, I really don't see, like, I really don't see her as this, you know, the, the black sheep kind of character. She's older than Sean Penn then? She's really older than Sean Penn? I didn't know she was older than Sean Penn. <laughs> I'm trying to think when Sean Penn sort of really came onto the scene now. Um, <laughs> now I was suddenly like just googling roughly. It's like what how old Sean Penn is. Um, oh, I know that Sean Penn's the reason uh, Nicholas Cage changed his name to Nicholas Cage because he was uh, Nicky Coppola before. And uh, Sean Penn was basically riding him on, I think it was on Valley Girl or something like that, um, by his connection to uh, Coppola, so he changed his name to Nick Cage, thinking it was tougher. <laughs> um, yeah, anything else, uh, Tom? We all happy with that? No, I think we're ready for further viewing. Cool. Um yeah, so further viewing, what do we pair with this one, if we obviously like this one? Well, as I said before, I think I'd pair Sabrina with it, okay. where you have the old younger brother dynamic. Um, it's kind of a girl in the middle, but still, I think that, that was my first thought of watching it. I, I'd pair it with Sabrina. Yeah. No, that's not a bad choice. Uh, for me, I actually went a little bit more recent, and I went into something um, kind of like a game that kind of like breaks game and reality into the center, and um, I chose Escape Room. It's not a great, great movie, but it kind of matches well with this kind of like this this movie. 
Cool. There's also a DTV um, movie called uh, Skate Room as well, which is awful. So you really make sure you don't you get the good one. Um, yeah. Uh, for myself, I've actually got a couple, so I'm just going to quickly run through these. Uh, first off is uh, Don't Say a Word. It's another Michael John uh, Michael Douglas thriller. Um, who plays a psychiatrist who has to break through um, through this as uh, this uh, patient's sort of uh, mental wall to discover a secret that apparently she only knows. Um, also has the wonderful Brittany Murphy in it, and it's a film that I was surprised didn't get more of a buzz when it came out. It sort of came and disappeared, but um, it's a really interesting thriller. Uh, the one I would also add onto that list would be Shutter Island, which uh, oh yeah, Scorsese. Um, yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio is a U.S. marshal investigating a disappearing uh, patient from a mental hospital. Uh, this is the film that really plays out better, plays out just as well when you watch it the second time and start questioning why characters are acting the way that they are. It's a really great one to dissect. Um, and also on the paranoia side of things, I'd recommend The Machinist from 2004, uh, which memorably features uh, Christian Bell losing a lot of weight as he becomes a human skeleton, uh, playing a lathe operator who is slowly being killed by insomnia as he troubles to uh, discover the, the source of why he can't sleep. Um, it's a really sort of haunting sort of film and one that really has a really good payoff um, at the end, um, and uh, features an absolute stand-up performance by Christian Bale, who once again shows himself more than willing to go the distance when it comes to getting into characters. Um, but those would be my personal picks for that one. Um, and this obviously brings us into another episode. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening. And um, Norman, uh, thank you for obviously coming on and discussing the game with us. Yeah, for sure. Anytime. You're picking, you're picking very good directors, so it's uh, always good. Um, and if people want to obviously come and find out more of you, where's, where's the best place to come and find you? Well, my movie blog, which is a little quiet right now because there's not many movies to go out and see, but, um, but Flick Hunter, uh, flickhunter.blogspot.com. And on Twitter, you can find me at McStay12. Fantastic. And uh, Kim, um, where are we going to next? Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I lost my tab. Wait. Sorry. Uh, Let me buy you some time. Uh, it's okay. I got it. It's here. Uh, okay, so after this, we're heading to two years later in 1999 and Fight Club. Yeah, Fight Club, a film which uh, initially failed on its release in the cinemas, only to find strong word of mouth following on VHS. Um, since then, turning into a essential cult classic as both critics and audiences reassess their opinion, uh, featuring incredible performances by both Brad Pitt and Edward Norton, as well as Helen Bonham Carter, and let's not forget a very interesting cameo by Meatloaf. But uh, all that's to discuss on our next episode. Um... As always, uh, you can uh, check out our full archive of episodes at moviesandteapodcast.wordpress.com. 
Uh, you can also, wherever you happen to be listening to us, you know, maybe leave us a like or a review. Or leave us a uh, rating. It all helps with the promotion of the show. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And we are also on Instagram as well. So uh, come and hang out with us there and let us know what you think of the show and the films we've been discussing. Um, but thank you as always for listening. Thank you to my co-host Kim. And thank you to Norman from Fleck Hunter for joining us. And we'll be back next time to discuss Fight Club. Good night. Come on.